speak this morning and prepare come to dig and work hard. I know that that is not typically what we're looking to hear in the opening remarks of a Sunday morning message is how much is required of you in this event, actually. Um, we have some work to do. Uh, we're coming back to Hebrews 9. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with 9.15 and uh, how it follows from just the previous passage of verses uh, 6 uh, down through verse 14. When we looked at verse 15, uh, just as the implications or the uh, consequences to what we saw in 11 through 14. Now we're going to come back to 15 and follow it, not from 15 reaching up, but we're going to follow 15 reaching down as it continues to go out and conclude all of chapter 9 together. And there's a lot going on in chapter 9, so we have some mental work that uh, we're both going to have to do together. There are two proclamations I hope to help you receive with more clarity. That you know these proclamations, and maybe they are crystal clear in your mind. Great, and I hope just to keep that clarity for you and not refuse. Maybe perhaps you know them, but they're not really concretely clear. Great, better. I hope to offer clarity to these two proclamations that come out of this text with meaning because of this text. They are these two proclamations, I, I hope and, and to conclude, from this text. Proclamation one, you don't have to jot it necessarily or even note it, I'm not even going to put it in the outline, it's just we're going to work to better understand this proclamation I'm offering up front and then I'll bring it back up at the end, Lord willing. I don't forget about it between the beginning and the end. That is my effort. One, your sins are forgiven. See, so you do that probably. You, you, you probably hear that. If you sat in a, a, a service or if you read the text of scripture before, or you've been alive, you've heard that that proclamation exists. Your sins are forgiven. But it comes from somewhere. Not abstract, out the sky, high. Somewhere concrete and specific. A great point of access for grasping it, a little bit of work, is to use now. The second proclamation, related to the first proclamation, your sins are forgiven, is number two. You are free from sin's power. Which, as a believer, is tremendously joyful. Both those proclamations are critical as a believer that you, you have placed your faith in Christ who then justified you. Not your faith, Jesus, the person who justifies. And in that justification, you hear, your sins are forgiven and you are free from sin's power. You, you, you have died with him, been baptized and raised with him, and now you walk in a newness of life. You, you have been forgiven. And now you're new this life, you're free from sin's power. These two proclamations I hope to clarify from where do they spring. So we be sure of their concrete value. 
other words, what is the context that they come out of? It's not the sky. It's a particular way in which Christ has worked that he can then turn to you and say, your sins are forgiven. You're free from sins. So, last time in verse 15, we considered two parts, two vital aspects, I call them, two vital aspects of Christ's mediation, the work as mediator. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We thought mediation, we thought about it in two ways from the text. I, I just clarify for you a brief bit of verse 15. That is, he is a mediator in two ways to consider this. Vital aspects to his mediation. Number one, and this is where we need to continue to labor just a little, little bit. It's a covenantal context. So, in other words, like I said, the amphitheater, the, the surrounding area uh, within which Christ is here and he is a mediator, that context is covenant. Covenant content. He's mediating specific covenant content to his people. That covenant content is revealed in chapter 8 of Hebrews. We've already covered it, that new covenant. And so it's referred to here in that that he is mediator of a new covenant. Not a new mediator with no information. Not a mediator with no benefits. But a mediator in a covenant context. There's particular actual promises, actual statements, actual benefits that he's giving is a covenant context. The second piece of Christ's covenantal mediation is that we spoke of its nature, the nature of his mediatorial work, and we had spoken in terms of effectual. That is, he mediates in such a way that he infects that which he needs. That is to say, what we mean by infectional mediation is that Christ's mediation between God and man, the mediating word of Christ, belongs to such a nature that it ensures a positive experience. It is effectual. Someone texted me after the service last week with a spot-on, a spot-on, updated example. I, I spoke of Christ as mediator between God and man. And I, I, I did it like this. In my mind, my mind, I went to like dropping a feather in the air and watching it do this number about 10 million times before it lands on the ground. And because, again, it's kind of aimless. It's just without a goal. It's just kind of working its way to where it's going to land. Someone texted me after the service with a greater, and I love concrete, actual things we can understand and think on and apply. And, and, and a better concrete uh, example of that, uh, the individual texted me, it's not on. It, all of us have seen the price is right. Half more still than the blank stare. You have. It's a game show. And there is a particular game on there called Flinko. 
Right? So the person stands at the top and drops a chip, and then the chip is working down. You're shopping at the TV. I hope it lands in 5,000 slot. Fan camera, you know, they get to see or something like that. Um, that is, to underscore, not double underline, highlight, not how price mediation of his benefits work. But they are actually working and should be a positive response. That would be on the Blinko stage, and now I'm going past my analogy, which is always dangerous. You can have a wide open slot to where this mediation is going, this person is going, is going directly to the center. So the person at the top, of course, they can do that. They would walk in the middle where the 5,000 is, they would drop it, they would go straight down into 5,000. And that, that's their goal. Here's the meaning. They're going to go on the achievement. This is the factual nature of price mediatorial work. So we could summarize this way. So then, then I, I provide for you, just if some of you are being introduced to what we mean by a factual, that it ensures a positive response. It makes the pronouncement that it is a positive response. So, so one might ask, so you're saying that Christ's mediatorial work is coercive, not to go backwards, but to help as we go forward. It's coercive. He just grabs people, kicking and screaming and drags them. For me, I say, no, absolutely not. It is not coercive. <coughs> but we find it as creative. And if, if that is concerned, jot down Romans 4. As we took time last week to look up how it is that God calls life from the dead, and he speaks in the darkness and creates light. That is what we're speaking of Christ's benefits going forward effectually. It is a creative act to whereby he mediates those benefits and he causes the person to whom he's mediating, he causes them to not do that which they previously did not want to do. That is called. So we would summarize our portion in the text this way. It's now I've concluded 915 where we were. All of you remember though, because I know you memorize sermons. Really listen to them on the left again and again. But just for my sake, refreshing my 915 where we've been. We conclude this point and then we would go forward this way as I conclude. We'll be to understand about the work of Christ putting together the covenant context and the effectual work of that covenant. His person mediating himself and his benefits to his people. It is the sole end. So, verse 11, he offered himself as a blood offering. And this is what we would conclude from that. The sole end why Christ procured anything by his death. The sole reason why he did it, why he achieved, why he procured anything by his death. was that it might be applied to them for whom it was so procured. Let me restate. We would say, putting this together, the sole end, why Christ procured anything by his death, was that it might be applied to them for whom it was so good. That means, as we look at Hebrews 9, Christ is not a hypothetical 
substitute for a hypothetical redeemer or a hypothetical sacrifice, but he is a real and actual redeemer. Whose death does redeem, whose death is a substitutionary atonement and a sacrifice. That he then mediates the country. It is this role of Christ as substitute that the Apostle now are fully explained of our time this morning in chapter 9, that Christ is an actual substitute in the context of covenant. Look with me as we begin in our text, as we're looking, as Matt said, at the heart of the gospel, the word of the gospel of Christ, the proclamation of what he has achieved, that he is an actual and real substitute. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the, the soul and for why he procured anything by his death. That it might be applied to them for whom it was so procured. That, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, your first question, looking at verse 15, now you're beginning to ask this question. Why is a new covenant in contrast to a first covenant? Wouldn't you be looking at verse 15 and you'd say, therefore, he is neither of a new covenant from the transgressions that occurred under the old covenant. New and old makes sense. But here he draws the contrast to new and first. What is the contrast of the two covenants at work here? That Christ mediates a new contrast to a first. Well, the new covenant, this is the context within which his mediation makes sense. He is mediating a new covenant. And this covenant that he is the mediator of belongs to Abraham. So you recall a covenant of grace, that which is announced to Adam post-fall. Where would you say that that covenant makes its initial announcement? Genesis, does anyone have the reference? Highly interactive this morning. 315, praise the Lord. So post-Adam, we have the initial announcement of this covenant in, Adam, uh, in Genesis. 3.15. We see it also begin to be revealed next with this man who found favor with the Lord. This covenant also belongs to a covenant of graciousness. The man Noah. We see it then come to great clarity in the event of the man Abraham. And we hear it also announced belonging to David. And now we see his people. This covenant that he needs is a covenant of promise. He will cause it to be achieved. This belongs to what? Hebrews 6 and 7. The unchangeable purposes of God. This covenant which he needs, this new and better covenant, is a covenant built on contrasting covenant, the first covenant, 
belongs then, if we go backward as we just did with the covenant belonging to grace, we find also a corresponding first covenant, don't we? So we see Genesis 3.15, the, the initial announcement of a newer covenant, uh, the initial announcement of a covenant belonging to a graciousness whereby through promise God will sheep his ends. And we go back, so we say, now from a new, he mediates this covenant of promise. There is a first covenant. So we go from Genesis 3 to this way, now we're going a first covenant. Without in a covenant of obedience. A covenant of what we call works. This first one that is not And this covenant with Adam at this point of the fall, this covenant of working, perpetual and perfect obedience by performance, then gave way to the announcement of a gracious covenant whereby God's performance would achieve its ends. <coughs> this covenant, this first covenant, is also republished where? Through Moses. And a covenant you remember the language of the covenant with Moses? This is the contrast of covenant where Jesus is its mediator. And it is new. It is better. It belongs to grace by promise in contrast to the first covenant that belonged to performance. So we hear it now. We hear it yet again republished in Moses to do and live. First covenant that belonged to personal performance. A new covenant belongs to performance of God. These are the contrasting covenants whereby Jesus mediates his own performance in a new and better covenant in contrast to a covenant of personal performance. I want to take a note here because some of you might be thinking. So there is no grace in the law. You're saying that the, 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 the covenant that Moses gave the people of God was sheer legalistic performance? And th that would be um, no. And it, it was no a long time ago, but some of you haven't been here when we were working on the nature of the law. Uh, so it might sound in this moment like, yeah, but I'm doing that to create a great contrast where we are in chapter 9, as opposed to how much work in the nature of the law all the way along. It was one of personal performance. Uh, and, and it wasn't graded on a curve, but exact, perfect, perpetual obedience. <coughs> Yet the grace that came to those who could not perform, as in all of Adam's children, there was also a sacrificial system that was a provisionary sacrifice for those who embraced the law by faith, not by the They were promised. By a Therefore, we can hear John and John once say grace made God through Moses. God established a relationship with his people. And grace upon grace has come to us through Christ. So there was a graciousness in the law. 
Let me pause right here and say how this is helpful in six categories. I, I won't explain all six of them, but I'm going to help with how the covenant context helps us understand six particular ways in which we tend to speak and sometimes lack clarity. Number one, relationship. Relationship is here within this text of chapter 9, a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is explained and defined by number two, requirements. Think for a moment. I have suggested this before. I would suggest it again. I currently am suggesting it again. <laughs> that is that everyone shares a covenant relationship with God by virtue of creation. So the question is not, do you have a relationship or do you want, but it is what kind of relationship do you have? One where Christ is your leader, where you hear the promise, your sins are forgiven, and your useless is power. Or is it a bad relationship whereby you are continuing to strive against the law by personal appointments? A covenant creates a relationship. This relationship comes with two requirements. Stipulations involved in the relationship. So all of us in this room have a covenant relationship. All of us in this room have requirements before us in relationship to God. All of us. This makes sense of the Gospels and proclamations. Third, transgressions. In the text you note there in the, in the, in the text, it says, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What do we mean by transgressions? Well, transgressions make sense in the context of stipulations in a relationship. There is an actual and real transgression that can take place between God and us. In other words, there is such thing as sin. It's not an idea. It's real. All of us share. Four, and out of six helpful things that covenant gives to us, makes sense for us in the way that we relate to God. Number four, death. Since a death has occurred, why is death, death so prevalent in the Bible? If you were to look through your text there, through the rest of chapter nine, you will see death or blood. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Well, beginning with 15, 13, 14 times. It's a bloody Just pounding this with constant death. Why does that make sense? Because of the context of covenant. Think about who is in the covenant. God and man. Who is God in the covenant? Holy and just. Not only is death required because of the holiness and justice of God, but it is also the gracious provision of sacrifice. Again, how we can approach 
as this text will make clear, through the substitutionary atonement of another. So death is a requirement both for God's justice and yet it is a gracious provision for those who are in complete violation through sacrifice. Number five, another helpful thing, and I know you will walk out of here and say, I learned six things right in a row, one, two, three, four, five, six, and it all makes sense to me now. Now I can finally speak with clarity, as if I am currently right now speaking to all of you. But if I can be helpful, <coughs> to step away from thinking these vague notions of sin or transgression or the idea of a relationship or the idea of death, the idea of obedience, these all keep kind of seeing way out there. I don't really know how to speak of it in a biblical, concrete way. In other words, they have a context for me. Covenant makes clear the context where these categories are real and actual for all mankind. Five, redemption. That is, God makes a promise those who are in violation. In other words, transgressors. Six. This is in our text also inheritance. It is an inheritance that is secured by the performance of another and given to those by faith who trust in that very person and performance. Again, these are categories that and real, concrete, and they matter. They come to us in a context that Christ is meaning. Covenant. In sum, covenant context makes sense of Christ as a substitute. <coughs> now that I thoroughly use all of you with notions of covenant and relationship, stipulations, transgressions, redemption, and inheritance. Let me muddy the waters some more if I could by progressing through the text with you. That we will grasp the text as it is presenting to us in this covenant context Christ as our substance. So, with me then, in this text, consider Christ as our substitute in a covenantal context by first following the apostle as he's reminding us the crux of the matter here. Look at verse 15, and then we'll follow the rest of the text as we conclude our time. Verse 15, Therefore he, Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant, better comes from chapter 7, so that those who are called... It's effectual by nature, might receive this promise of eternal inheritance. Here we go. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant, he will elaborate on this death that occurred for the remainder of the text. So I will, as well as we trace out what he's getting at at the crux of the matter that a death has occurred to completely change this covenant. What does the occurrence, perhaps you are asking, and I am asking this for you, I am supplying the question, and that is, what does the occurrence
occurrence of a death have to do with covenant, either the first covenant or the new covenant. Notice he is mediator of the new, because a death hasn't occurred that redeems from under the first. So no matter if you're in the new or if you're under the first, the death occurring is a crux of the matter. So I ask, whether I'm in the new or under the first, what does a death occurring have to do with the covenant? As the apostle makes such an effort here for us to grasp the significance of the atoning death of Christ. The answer is this. If we were to go from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to its end, to its end conclusion, and we were to track all of the covenant uh, mediation that is occurring, all the covenants that are occurring through Scripture from Genesis all the way to the end, where we are presently right now in the New we would see from beginning to end that the occurrence of death is, please hear, inseparable to the covenant-making process. It's inseparable. Whether we're here, 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 or here, it is inseparable. The, the piece that binds it all together is it is inseparable to the covenant-making process that a death occurred. This is what he's counting at, and Christ, therefore, is a mediator of a new. Why? Because a death has occurred. It is inseparable with the covenant-making process that a death has to occur in the covenant-making process. Let me show you how now that is his focus as we're looking at Christ, who did die as substitute in the covenant, making, therefore, a new covenant ratified for us. argues this way, verse 16. For where a will is involved, he, he, he provides us in 16 and 17 a legal analogy, as it were, so that we would understand upon death, then and only then do the benefits flow. But Christ is not offering us last will and testament. He is binding us to a covenant. But we have a legal analogy here to, to sow in the concept of death. That only when death occurs do benefits come. Whether a last will and testament, for example, or what we have in Christ in the covenant. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death. Since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. You get it? And everyone says, yeah, I get it. I get the will and testament idea that upon that, then new benefits flow. Well, then consider it what we have in Christ, a new covenant. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant, comparing the new to the first, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. There are three things, if I could piece it out, three things we must note here regarding the occurrence of a death that then brings forth the benefits of the covenant. Three things we must note here. 
Number one, so that we can wrap our minds around hearing the proclamation, your sins are forgiven. You are free from sin's power. It seems like we can look somewhere in one and cut this process in half. But we're here. <laughs> there are three things we must get out of this kind of trouble, kind of hard text here. Hebrews 9. Three things that stand out to us to make sense of hearing that proclamation of these words. That is number one. What I've already noted to you. As he demonstrates with Moses sprinkling the book and the people with the blood of the covenant, essential to covenant making is the actual and real occurrence of death or bloodshed. It is essential. That's why he says whether it be, like, like for example, if it's a will and testament, it only occurs after death. So to in the covenant, first of all, nothing was inaugurated without the shedding of blood. Essential to the covenant-making process is the actual real occurrence of death or bloodshed. Number two, and in this building, we are, we are on our way from here to there. Number two, the blood being shed, and, and this is important for all of us, hopefully all of us. Number two, think with me for a moment in the covenant-making process. The blood being shed symbolizes the death of the covenant maker. So there's a covenant being established. Well, how's it going to be established? Well, there must be a death that occurs. In that death or that blood being shed, whatever image we want, where we find earlier in the text of chapter 9, Christ was offering himself, offering up his blood. So, same concept, blood and death. So, in this blood being shed, what is that symbol? We know it has to occur for us to be in a binding relationship. We know that it has to occur. It's essential. Without that, it doesn't occur. So, it's happening. What is its symbol? Why? Why does it happen? What is the symbol of the blood being shed? It is symbolizing the death of the covenant maker. The third and final piece we want to know here, that Moses, in the shedding of the blood, sprinkled people, sprinkled the book, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. In other words, being sprinkled, it's symbolizing death of the covenant Thirdly, without, and this maybe didn't need to be restated, but kind of covered it in one, for clarity. Without this pledge to death, the covenant-making procedure is not complete. So number one is it's essential, number three kind of repeats it in just another way. Without it, therefore, there is no covenant procedure. Now begin to, to, to put in your mind, I rejoice in the proclamation to me that my sins are forgiven, and that I can have by grace to prove this. I understand this because Christ is mediating a new and better covenant whereby.
or substitution. How so? Go back to Hebrews 9. They received all of the stipulations, all of the requirements of the law, and the response to this law, and ratifying this covenant was all of this that was spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And I hope as you have heard how it's gone from there to here in redemptive history, you are crying out for substitution. That's his heartbeat. Look at verse 21 and 22, following this procedural picture here. What he read, rehearsing the Exodus, and saying this, the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used to worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Death, under the law, death is the penalty for the transgressions committed under this first covenant. You might ask, why is death the requirement underneath this first covenant? I offer you two reasons very quickly. Two reasons why death is the penalty under the transgressions more clearly now than we did by way of introduction. Two reasons why death is the penalty under the first covenant. Number one, and we must appreciate that as individuals right now. This is not to step out as believers and say somewhere in time that was a penalty for a covenant under Moses. It is to recognize that is the penalty all in covenant of God. So it would apply to those this morning also we're still outside of the substance who died of death. Death is still the requirement for transgressions. As he articulated there very clearly, without shedding blood, there is no Two reasons for it. Number one, God's holy justice must be here. It must be satisfied. In order for him to be, as we sang earlier, he is both just and the justifier. In order for that to be true, his justice must have been met. In order for him to be just. Death is the penalty for transgressions to be the first one. Because God's holy justice must be carried out. Number two, God cannot meet with his people until they are church. That's why he gets on purification, verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, those things under the law, to be purified with these rites. God cannot be with his people until they are purified. Both. and purity are provided in one substitution. Both of these are provided 
this verse 26 of our text. I just skip all that portion because we covered briefly over time so far since he's been arguing this man for quite some time. But look at verse 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. What I want to draw your attention to at the substitutionary good of Christ right here. But as it is. Back to that. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? How does he put away our purification problems, our corruption, our forgiveness purity, and put away our pollution? How has he done this? How has he met God's justice and made purification? How has he done this? As a substitute. By the sacrifice. A what? Bulls, goats, calves of himself. Let me conclude with you by seeing how these two covenants, the first covenant, the transgression submitted under it, have been, the justice has been met, and a provision of promise has been established whereby Christ. As the fulfillment of both covenants needs a new covenant. Consider with me, this is my final comment this morning on the Hebrews and I. I need to sew up the first covenant and the new. Christ is the fulfillment of the first covenant. Justice has been. Jesus' obedience satisfies the terms of the first covenant. Now I think that's his point for one. For all those who say, we will do all these things. Believe that we won't.
So the proclamation is this. First you heard from Moses. Your sins have been forgiven. Now you hear from Abraham. You are free from Saul's power. From violence. Power. To say no to sin. Yes to everything. Not so. Father, I pray that you would help each of us wrap our minds around these texts. Many more like them. But enable us to really understand that we are related to Jesus because of what he has done. And so imputed to our identity act of obedience, whereby our sins have been forgiven. It is the performance of Abraham. Ring of promise, whereby as a child I am free from sin's power. Before we hear yet again in the gospel proclamation that we must believe by faith in Christ as our substitute. I would pray, Lord, for any who are here outside of Christ and remaining under the first covenant, where transgressions are committed, justice has not been met in their account, but they have been in Christ by faith, finding Him that is so sustainable. God, Jesus Christ, would it be clothed in His obedience and power of His righteousness? Great saints here who have so many clothed in Christ, they would look in into 